It's the 14th of October, and you're listening to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamir Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 32nd episode. Today, we will discuss Indonesia, world's third largest democracy, also the world's fourth most populous nation. Indonesia is going through the COVID crisis, challenges to reforms, and political machinations, even as the nation is led by the popular president, Joko Widodo. To talk about all this, we will connect with Ben Bland, director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute. Before joining the Lowy Institute, Ben was an award-winning foreign correspondent for the Financial Times, with postings in Hanoi, Hong Kong, and Jakarta, and experienced reporting across China and Southeast Asia over the previous decade. Ben has a new book, A Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo, and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. Ben Bland, welcome to Kopi Time. Great to be with you, Tamo. Thank you. Um, ben, uh, I'd like to break up our discussion in two sort of chunky portions, if I may, today. Uh, first, about the outlook of Indonesia as it grapples with the coronavirus crisis. And then, uh, your highly informative and well-written new book on Indonesia's President Joko Widodo. So, let's begin with the state of affairs in Indonesia. Uh, from your vantage point at the Lowy Institute, you analyze regional economies and governments. How, in your view, has Indonesia fared so far in dealing with the pandemic, both by its own standards and relative to its regional peers? Well, I think if you, if you look by Indonesia's own standards, it came into this crisis in a really difficult position because it had a health system that was already really overstretched in terms of demand and under-resourced in terms of financing. And you know, Indonesia had already a very low level of doctors per thousand population, the same for intensive care beds, isolation rooms, etc. And generally, there are problems with the Indonesian central government projecting policy and implementing it down at the local level across such a big, diverse country of 270 million people spread over thousands of islands. So it wasn't a great position to be coming into this pandemic. But I think even given that, the government made a number of early missteps um, in not taking the pandemic seriously, um, as many other governments did around the world. Um, and I think it's really continued um, those missteps and hasn't yet really got a, a grasp of what to do about the problem. So Indonesia is still really suffering this endless first wave, as it's been called. Um, the government doesn't have a great strategy um, for trying to manage the, the pandemic. Jokowi, Joko Widodo, the president, um, has been very concerned about the impact on the economy of, of lockdown. So there's been very limited uh, restrictions on movement from time to time, which haven't really been adequate if you talk to the epidemiologists. Um, but I think more importantly, Indonesia hasn't really increased its testing capacity. So it has one of the lowest uh, testing rates per population in the world, unfortunately. And that means no one quite has a handle on, on the figures. So the official data says around 12,000 Indonesians have died, sadly, so far, um, which is the highest number in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, more than 300,000 people have caught um, COVID-19 in Indonesia, which is also up there alongside the Philippines. But the Indonesian government would say, well, if you look at the rates of death per million and compare us to, to the US, to, to India, to Brazil, to Mexico, we're doing really, really well. Uh, the problem is, as I said, the data isn't quite clear. And the government's communication strategy throughout has been unclear. Right at the start, Jokowi himself said he was deliberately withholding information to stop people from panicking. So I think there's a lack of confidence in the government's ability 
ability to handle the crisis. It hasn't been disastrous. And we have to acknowledge that Indonesia came into this, you know, with a really difficult situation because of its scale and the governance issues I mentioned. Ben, uh, governance issues notwithstanding, I think you and I both agree that Indonesia has a highly energized civil society. The country is a big consumer of social media, information from social media. So what's your sense of how sort of civil society has stepped up or tried to supplant the role of the government or like thereof in this crisis? I think this has been one of the overlooked aspects of Indonesia's response that it is, I still think, uh, despite issues we'll maybe talk about later, the, the strongest democracy in Southeast Asia. And Indonesians have stepped up where I think the government has not done enough. So people I know who are living in villages and also in, in wealthy housing estates have looked to protect their own communities by having their own monitoring of, of who's, who's ill and who's not, who's coming back from an area where maybe they ought to be self-quarantining. So people have tried to step up. Uh, there's an Indonesian data group who've been trying to have their own counts, um, looking at death rates and other other numbers to try and get a clearer picture of what's going on. So people have tried to fill into that that gap. And I think there's been some success there. I think what I find a bit concerning is the government's um, lack of trust in civil society. I think this has been a trend in the last few years. And we see that in the president earlier on trying to withhold information. So I don't think the government has necessarily welcomed civil society efforts here, or indeed the efforts of some local governments to have tougher approaches uh, to things like lockdowns um, to protect their own areas. So there's been some tension there, but reassuring in a sense to see Indonesians stepping up. I mean, the only other thing I'd add is that I think for a democracy, the communication strategy, the public health messaging has been quite poor uh, in Indonesia. Unfortunately, there's been very confused messaging from different ministers, a lot of promotion of quack cures. So when people talk about an epidemic of mis an infodemic of misinformation about coronavirus in Indonesia, a, a lot of the confusing and misleading information is actually coming from government officials, sadly. And that contrasts uh, quite sharply with someone like Vietnam, uh, a one-party communist state where the government obviously used its rigid controls uh, to, to lock down areas and, and bring the, the virus under control. But it also had a much better uh, and more approachable public information and public awareness campaign. So I don't think it's just about the limitations of Indonesia's governance. I think uh, for various reasons, the government hasn't quite got a grasp on this. The hope is that Jokowi is a leader who's who's flexible, who can respond to pressure, and that he's able to try and, and get a more coherent response in the months ahead. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, we'll talk about President Jokowi in general later in the conversation, but you touched on an important issue, which is flexibility, something that we have seen absent, for example, in the U.S. administration through this COVID crisis, that it's been fairly dogmatic and not flexible enough in dealing with the crisis. And then you talk about countries like Vietnam, where from the get-go, they were very data and information and science driven. Do you have hope that the public health response will be more flexible in Indonesia going forward? And, and what about this whole vaccine development that's happening locally? I think we have to have hope because it's a really bleak situation for Indonesia in health terms and economic terms as well, um, if, if nothing changes. So um, initially, Jokowi was really saying we have to put the economy first. We have to put the economy first. If people can't eat, they'll die. So, so what's the point of lockdowns? Then he kind of shifted tack a bit saying, well, health comes first. Now he's kind of adjusted again to say it's both. I mean, the good thing is there are 
um, some high quality and skilled epidemiologists who are involved in the government response in Indonesia. The problem is they're not the only voices there. So if you look at the committee that's tasked with managing COVID and the economic crisis that's come with it, you know, on that committee, there is, you know, the army chief, uh, there's the Minister for State-Owned Enterprises. There's the Minister for Maritime Affairs, uh, the last two being ministers who are particularly close personally to Jokowi. So what concerns me is, is this emphasis on personality and not process. So Indonesia does have the epidemiologists, the scientists. Obviously, we know it has the economic technocrats. But the question is, are their voices being listened to? Is there a careful enough policy debate? And these are issues which we have to acknowledge are many countries, especially big countries, are, are struggling with. There aren't many many large countries who've done a very very good job um so it's not easy but i don't think indonesia has quite got the balance right and um, there are some signs of, of adjustment from the president but not enough i think to keep uh, indonesian doctors and epidemiologists happy yet they're still quite concerned that the government doesn't seem to be doing enough um, it doesn't seem to be transparent enough or or taking the problem seriously enough just yet no, you're right. Large democracies have definitely struggled from the U.S. to India to Brazil. I mean, that's certainly been an issue. And then, of course, China being a large non-democracy is a glaring exception and getting this more or less right. Um, you mentioned uh, along the way of the depth that Indonesia has also the economic technocrats. Uh, ben, in the last few months, along with fighting the pandemic, Indonesians have rolled out a spate of reform measures. And, and as we speak, in the middle of October, there is a lot of... Uh, noise around this omnibus bill. Uh, can you walk us through what's going on there? Well, it's very hard to walk you through it, Tamar, because there are four versions of the bill in, in circulation as, as we speak, even though it's been passed by the parliament. I mean, this is quite normal in Indonesian policymaking terms that you can have a law that's passed, but no one outside a small number of people ha have read it. Uh, there were various drafts um, earlier on. Um, and broadly, I think the goal of this bill is to try and improve Indonesia's attractiveness to long-term direct foreign investors, as well as um, to direct long-term domestic investors. That's the broad goal. Um, and it's meant to tackle things like Indonesia's very high severance payment requirements. Um, it's meant to make it more flexible for people to hire and fire people. It's meant to make permitting processes for starting up businesses easier. And it's meant to reduce some of the complex requirements for environmental assessments. So by and large, it's meant to, to drive a, a sort of flourishing of investment in Indonesia, which has long been a Jokowi focus. But as always, the devil is in the detail. But more than that, how this this bill is, is politically um, presented to the Indonesian people because in the last few weeks, there's been a number of big rolling protests. Uh, trade unions are unhappy that with what they think is the laws push to undermine their rights. But more generally, we've seen students and other groups unhappy with the way that, that Jokowi's administration is basically forcing this bill through in a very short period of time with, with minimal public debate. Um, and I think some international investors too have raised concerns about um, the potentially the weakening of environmental protections. So I think so far it hasn't really achieved it, its objective. Um, obviously, it's going to be a long-term game and the challenge in Indonesia is always, in any case, implementation uh, because the law in Indonesia is, is a moving target. You have a law, but then you have to fill it out with many, many presidential and ministerial regulations. And then there's the question of how those 
those regulations are actually enforced um, and how they're balanced against many other regulations which often tend to overlap or go against existing and new laws and regulations. So it's quite hard to know where this winds up and I think that's part of the problem. It reflects, I think, uh, what we've seen under Jacoby in his second term, this increasingly instinctive, impulsive and, and perhaps stubborn approach to politics um, because he's in a rush, I think, to get things done and, and quite genuinely he wants to bring in more investment, seeing the, the troubles the Indonesian economy is going to face because of the pandemic. Um, but I think the difficulty is you can't just legislate like that because you'll confuse investors, adding to you know this, this sense of frustration that's already there. And you, know, you risk not bringing the Indonesian public along with you as well, as we've seen through these, through these protests against the bill where, where no one more generally has actually seen the detail yet. Yes, Ben, and as you talk about, you know, the risk of uh, confusing or alarming investors, the other area where we saw some announcements a few months ago and which certainly spooked uh, foreign investors was this notion of significant amount of coordination between the central bank and the Ministry of Finance in supporting the government's debt issuance. Now, look, this is happening worldwide. Indonesia is no uh, exception. I mean, the Federal Reserve is also buying U.S. government debt, but perhaps Bank Indonesia uh, you know, looked a little too forward and a little too eager. Uh, and, and lately we've seen government officials sort of walk back some of the implications of this, you know, uh, coordination. So what's your sense? I mean, is this like a big deal? I mean, should we worry about the independence of the Indonesian Central Bank or things are, we're reading too much into this? We, I think it's important that people understand that the the talk about changing the law specifically to, to, to undermine the bank, Bank Indonesia, the central bank's independence. That's something that's coming from the parliament that probably won't be able to move ahead without support from the president, from the from the executive branch. And and so far, Sri Mulyani Indrawati, the, the well-respected finance minister, has suggested that this is something that's probably not going to happen. But I think that there is rightly a more general concern, one in that we see people in, in the parliament and in the political environment who do want to take more control over the central bank just at the time when Indonesia is trying out quantitative easing, uh, debt monetization, whatever you call it. Because obviously, I think around the world, there's a concern and and the Fed, as we know, can get away with much more than particularly emerging markets. There's a concern that that politicians will get sort of addicted to this idea of of free money, um, which, which is quite concerning. So I think the investors, uh, the markets can probably take this for now. Um, but it, the question is, is Indonesia going to shift in a bigger direction towards uh, you know, a monetary policy that's much more driven by political influences? I think that risk is there, frankly speaking, uh, because of the, you know, the nature of the crisis we're in. And because everywhere in the world, we see where new financial ideas are, are tried out, which tend to give or seem to give free money to governments, like the income tax back in the day of the Napoleonic wars in, in the United Kingdom, in England at the time, uh, these ideas tend to stick because politicians like the idea of getting money from nowhere to fund their, their grand ideas. So I think that people are right to be concerned given the number of different forces at play here, but certainly there's no grounds for, for major concern yet. This isn't something that's going to shift imminently and it's more about where Indonesia goes, I guess, in the next two, three years. And we'll have to see how, how the pandemic and the economic crisis that comes with it plays out. But this is a very critical point that you have raised, that uh, if you see innovation or change in mindset on economic policy in the West, uh, the ripples affect us all over the world. And although sitting here in Asia, we don't have too many reserve currencies and we do not enjoy the exorbitant privilege of printing 
reserve currency like the US or the Euro Europeans do, uh, if they go toward you know, greater support for the fiscal authorities by the central banks, we will pick those habits up very quickly. But of course, the free lunch is proverbially absent as far as Asia is concerned. Um, so yeah, I, I think emerging markets, central banks, Indonesia included, would have to be very careful about sort of following the West in this regard. Um, and I, th I think, I mean, where, where this is interesting to me, it connects back to the, the omnibus bill and the question about long-term direct foreign investment, because the, the problem for Indonesia has really always been um, this high foreign ownership of Indonesian government bonds. That's really the transmission mechanism for weakness into the rupiah. So whenever you have these risk-off moments in, in global markets, as we saw at the start of the pandemic, you know, people just sell and Indonesia suffers indiscriminately, even if it's doing a better job than, say, Brazil or, or other emerging market nations. So I think that's the challenge. And the reason Indonesia has needs to borrow so much money um, through portfolio flows is because it's not really getting enough long-term direct um, foreign funding. So I think these two issues are linked in a sense for Indonesia, uh, which puts it in a very difficult position, I think. Yes, I think long-term funding is, is a function of two things. One is that you need some sort of a lead lag where the portfolio investors are making a fast buck in the country. They're excited about the outlook. I have like, you know, India in mind, Brazil in mind, where the equity markets do well. And that creates a bit of a virtuous cycle of then more sticky FDI flows following uh, because people see, you know, earnings potential and so on. In the case of Indonesia, portfolio investors, particularly equity portfolio investors, have not been well rewarded in the past decade or so, uh, although fixed income investors, in my view, has been you know more rewarded. So that remains Indonesia's challenge: that how to get not just uh, some degree of excitement among short-term portfolio investors, but then how to then it becomes a galvanizing impact for long-term sticky flows. You can't really have one without the other uh, in, in the way the global finance uh, is structured. Um, ben, so we're you know two and a half months away from the end of the year. It's been, of course, a year like no other, but there are telltale signs of recovery worldwide. Uh, just before talking to you, I was looking at Singapore's latest numbers. And as we have started gradually reopening here, uh, things have started to pick up. You see signs of pickup in Europe and the US, second wave of virus notwithstanding. What's your sense of 2021 for Indonesia? I think things will be more difficult in Indonesia because my sense was, and if you look at the data, um, you know, there were signs that the economy was slowing even before coronavirus. I mean, Indonesia has stuck stubbornly to this 5% a year GDP level. But as you were referring to, if you look at things like corporate profitability, um, you know, there's a sense that things weren't doing that great, um, that the economy was coasting. Um, so I wonder, I mean, the, the other thing we have to understand about Indonesia is it's mostly driven by domestic demand. So we haven't seen the kind of collapse in, in GDP that you've seen in, in a lot of trade dependent economies around the region. So I suspect my fear would be that Indonesia's slowdown will be more gradual and more persistent. Um, also, because Indonesia hasn't had the full kind of shutdowns that everyone else has had, it can't sort of slam, swing the door back open in the same way because it, ha it hasn't been locked down to the same extent. So I think it's going to be quite challenging, actually, um, for Indonesia. I mean, luckily, it's not that dependent on tourism um, as a nation, but it, it matters a lot to certain areas, obviously, Bali in particular. Um, so I think, I think much um, depends on how the government does in getting some sort of grip on, on the, the pandemic. After that, we'll, we'll have to see. But my concern is that it's going to be hard for Indonesia to get back 
back to the trend of growth it was on before, which was already kind of stagnating, if not slowing. And it was a very kind of uh, jobs poor growth, right? Indonesia has something like 3 million young people entering the workforce every year and not really creating anywhere near that that number of decent jobs, which is partly why uh, the president was pushing this omnibus bill to try and drive uh, more investment that would create those, those good jobs. So I think it's a concern not just about the GDP number, but about the quality of growth more generally in Indonesia. So I think it's going to be a bit, a bit of a struggle. Right. I mean, I think that whether it was President Jokowi's predecessor, SBY, or Jokowi in his first term, I mean, there's been this big desire to go for a big infrastructure push, whether it is metro or bridges and ports, or in the latest case, you know, movement of the capital of Jakarta. So clearly, there is this love affair with large-scale infrastructure projects and um, with purse strings loosening all over the world and money printing and, and uh, fiscal support being seen in a very different manner. I, you wonder whether we do have another big effort to go for a big push in the coming years or not. Um, and related to this, of course, is the politics. I mean, as you just pointed out, that even with the omnibus bill, how you communicate, how you gather up national support is very critical. What's your sense of national politics in Indonesia, Ben, for the rest of the year in 2021? Well, Jokowi, despite the criticism of his handling of the pandemic from, from Indonesian epidemiologists and scientists and others, you know, he remains remarkably popular. If you look at the latest polling data, he has approval ratings in the six, high 60 and even low 70% rating you know into his sixth year and in, in his second term in the, of the presidency which is quite remarkable um he has three quarters of the parliament behind him which is why he was able to f- force through this omnibus bill very very quickly um so i think ostensibly the signs are good in the sense that he remains popular he has a lot of elite level political party support behind him in theory i think the challenge and i think that's what the protests signify is that there is this level of discontent there's a concern that um that too much power has been amassed in a sense and indonesia is not seeing the sort of debate uh, the sort of opposition it needs to have better policy making and that's in the end why why students and others go to the streets uh you know to raise their voices because they don't think the normal democratic challenge channels the parliament uh the press um, other means of, of pushback or debate are working. So I think um, ostensibly at the elite level, it looks good. Uh, but I think more broadly, there's, there's a bit of a concern about you know, how the government is seeking to kind of throw its weight around, not really listening carefully enough. But at the same time, Jokowi still has this quite remarkable connection with many Indonesian voters because he is the first leader from outside the elite and he looks and, and sounds in a way like many ordinary Indonesians. So that, that I think buys him a lot of goodwill still. From, from many Indonesian voters, which I think is a, is a good thing. And I think some of the worst kind of fears about the political stability related to the pandemic, I think, were overblown. Um, Indonesia is actually much more stable than a lot of people give it credit for in terms of, of politics and social stability. My concern is always the policy stability um, and you know, how that, the policy transmission works and, and the ability or even the desire to actually uh, pursue the kinds of reforms Indonesia needs. But I think the kind of base level social stability is actually better than a lot of outsiders give it credit for. That's right. Uh, ben, we've talked a bit about domestic policy and domestic politics. Uh, what about international relations, particularly with respect to China's increasingly important role in the region? How is Indonesia adjusting to this shift from U.S. hegemony to, let's say, great power rivalry? 
I think Indonesia has done, by and large, a pretty pretty good job. It's in a similar place to many other of its neighbors um, in in the Asian region, in that it you know, counts the U.S. as an important security partner and a de facto security guarantor, not, of course, um, an alliance partner or anything like that, nothing formal, uh, but important for Indonesia to keep the US active in the region to maintain the security balance. But it sees a lot of economic opportunities in in trade, but I guess more so in Indonesia's case in getting direct investment and technology transfer from from China. And Jokowi is someone who's a former furniture maker. He's a former city mayor who has a very practical view of governance and governing. Um, and for him, foreign policy is really a tool uh, to support economic growth. So he's really tried to stay out of any great power politicking. He's tried to keep below the radar for the most part um, and to keep the flows of investment coming from China, but also allowing space uh, for the Indonesian military and others to keep their relationships up with the US and other US alliance partners like Australia and Japan. So it's this um, balancing act. And I think Indonesia is lucky in a sense that it's so far away from China. Um, There is a small maritime dispute at the the far tip of China's nine dash line claim to the South China Sea, where it intersects with a part of Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. There's no territorial dispute as such. It's over rights in a small part of this um, exclusive economic zone. And there have been a few incidents in the past between Chinese and Indonesian vessels. Um, And I think when that's happened, Jokowi has taken a relatively tough rhetorical line, but he hasn't really looked to securitize the issue. And he doesn't have to deal with the kind of regular incursions and harassment that, say, the Vietnamese, uh, the Philippines, and um, to to a lesser extent, the Malaysians have to deal with. So that, that buys him a bit of space um, to stay out of out of trouble, which I think is a good thing for him. Good. And um, in terms of you know expecting China to do a little bit of divestment of their you know supply chain into Indonesia or the capacity of Indonesia to absorb large scale Chinese investment, uh, I mean is I mean we've seen for example earlier this year it seems like a long time ago but in January during the World Economic Forum Vietnam made a big pitch to global. Uh, politicians and investors that they're the China proxy. Everybody wants to be the China proxy in the middle of the trade war that they want to pick up some of the mantle of manufacturing from China. Do you see Indonesia having much of a chance in that regard? Indonesia can certainly pick up some business. The challenge really it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the the broader investment climate, uh, the labor laws, um, the lack of policy clarity. So Indonesia's never really managed to do what Vietnam did and China did before, and and others like Malaysia have done in building these um, special economic zones where you know you have tax free status, uh, much easier to get permits, everything else. Um, it, it's tried in a number of cases. Um, it's never really got that off the ground. And broadly speaking, Indonesia's orientation economically is quite protectionist. Um, It's not really welcoming of open trade. And, you know, there's a high degree of skepticism from the population, as well as the political class, and importantly, the bureaucracy towards foreign investment. So I think that makes it very challenging, um, particularly for high quality investors, you know, who want to get projects up and running quickly and and meet the highest standards when it comes to to labor and environment, etc. And I think the other issue is still the the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure has improved, uh, certainly, but I think the soft infrastructure, 
structure of governance that needs to go with it to allow uh, manufacturers, participants in the global value chain to move their their goods um, and their parts in and out of the country very quickly. That's just simply not there, unfortunately. So you have this problem in Indonesia where maybe you can get your investment license and suddenly the customs will hold up your goods because of X or Y dispute or some other Indonesian competitor who's paid them off um, to cause you problems. So I think it's going to be quite difficult for Indonesia. The other more general issue is that wages have risen quite rapidly, especially in and around Jakarta and West Java, which is where kind of the biggest, some of the biggest industrial clusters have been so far. And there are parts of Indonesia with much lower minimum wages, like in central Java, uh, but less industrialized. So the challenge is the wages are rising in a sense faster than the productivity. And despite a lot of positive talk from Jokowi about opening up Indonesia to foreign investment, I don't think you know people really feel it's that easy. And even Chinese investors find that. I mean, there is this sense that Chinese investors can come in, pay everyone off and get things done really quickly. But if you look at one of the most high profile Chinese projects uh, to build a high speed rail link between the cities of Jakarta and Bandung in, in Java, that's really been mired in the same issues of land acquisition disputes um, that normally affect other large Indonesian projects. So I don't think Chinese investors have some kind of silver bullet solution either. It's just difficult to invest in Indonesia. And that means I think there's not going to be the first port of call for many uh, manufacturers leaving China. The advantage, of course, in Indonesia, you do have a very large domestic market. So if you can somehow you know, move manufacturing there that's able to be part of a global value chain, but also servicing the Indonesian market, um, then you do have an advantage. But um, I think it's going to be quite tough. Totally. Uh, ben, I'm curious, you mentioned that the protectionist tendency spans across the uh, population and the leaders of Indonesia. And I find it curious. I mean, you're talking about a country made out of lots of islands. It's an old maritime civilization. They have absorbed cultures and nations and uh, colonial powers for centuries and centuries. Um, and in the 80s and 90s, at least, you know, when you looked at ASEAN countries, you know, whether it was with respect to foreign capital inflow, uh, or, or, you know, ability to repatriate your money, Indonesia was one of the more open economies. So help me sort of reconcile this contradiction that on one hand, the country has been sort of open, has been doing business with the rest of the world for a very, very long time. But at the same time, it's not that quite, that, not that open. It is, it is a contradiction. And I, I don't think there's any easy resolution because I think in Indonesia's history, economic liberalism has always been a dirty word for for pretty understandable reasons in that Dutch colonialism was you know the handmaiden of economic liberalism and that left a trail of destruction and exploitation in Indonesia which Indonesia's founders were, were quite keen to move away from so in the Indonesian constitution it talks about the economy having a family orientation and the state uh, managing resources, land and water. And I think that's that was an important rejection of economic liberalism. Of course, Indonesia, as you say, has gone through phases of being more open. Um, there was a period during the Suharto um, era in the 1980s when it seemed to be taking this more kind of developmentalist, I guess, like East Asian tiger economy path. Uh, but I think that sort of faded and, and things have moved around. But by and large, there's this one force at play, you know, this desire for Indonesia to be protectionist, which is, is strange. I think it's more like the the thinking of a continental nation than it is, as you say, a, a collection of islands that you'd imagine to be a kind of a hub of trading. And that's obviously what it was in the past. But as a, a unified state, Indonesia, a, a unified great state, I think the government and the people think more like a, 
like America, like a, or India, like a, like a huge land-based nation, which is interesting. On the other hand, Indonesia does need the foreign capital and it needs the foreign technology. And so, you know, no Indonesian leader has been able to completely go down that path of autarky. Uh, Sukarno tried it in the early years after independence and it led to, to total economic collapse. So I think, you know, the economic reality forces Indonesia to be open to a certain extent, um, but that plays against this political desire for, for a more self-sufficient economy. And I think the challenge has to be for, for the government to find a way to, to build up a kind of holistic industrial policy, if you like, that sets out clear guidelines, um, clear areas where foreign investment is welcome and other areas where it's not. And also that if you are going to subsidize and support your state-owned enterprises and your domestic private sector, again, you need some sort of disciplining tools to make sure that they are competing uh, both domestically and importantly in the global market so that there is a, a productivity boost and you're not just subsidizing wasteful investments. So I think that that's a really big challenge. And I think like a lot of governments everywhere in the world, rather than sort of addressing that head on, they tend to just give different messages to different people. So outside, uh, President Jokowi will talk about Indonesia being open and competitive, any problems, foreign investors, just give me a call. Domestically, he'll say, we're going to curb imports, we're going to stand on our own two feet, we're going to build our industries, we're going to nationalize key resource projects. Um, but you know, it doesn't take much for foreign investors to find out what Jacoby is saying to the domestic population or vice versa. So I, I think it'd be good if there was more of an honest debate about this and an attempt to find a clear path forward. But again, I think a lot of countries struggle with this and, and you see many emerging and developed nations, frankly, giving these kind of very open messages to the outside world and a different message to the domestic population. The difference is Indonesia, I think, just desperately needs the, the foreign capital and technology if it's to grow its economy and, and generate those all important quality jobs. Absolutely. Um, we have in this conversation repeatedly brought up President Jokowi. So let's talk about the man, uh, your book. Um, and uh, the book is very provocatively titled. You call it a man of contradictions. So the obvious question, why is President Jokowi a man of contradictions, man? Well, when I met Jokowi and had the chance to meet many of his ministers, his advisors, his supporters over the years. You know, I was thinking about what kind of leader he was, how to make sense of him. And I was really confused and confounded by, you know, partly by these different messages he gives, um, even on an area like the economy, which has really been the focus of his presidency. And he still, you know, can't have a clear view. So he has, to be honest, probably tried harder than any other Indonesian leader in a long time to attract FDI, foreign direct investment. But at the same time, he's also overseen this biggest nationalization program of, of foreign-owned resource projects in recent years, as well as a huge push uh, to increase the role of state-owned enterprises. Um, in other areas as well, we see this very contradictory approach. So Jokowi uh, has profited from Indonesian democratization more than any other leader. He used free and fair elections and his mastery of retail politics to go from a small-town furniture maker to the president of a nation of 270 million people. But as I alluded to earlier on his watch we've seen the practice of democracy and the principles of democratic governance the power of the anti-corruption commission the protection of minority rights weakened we've seen on all these fronts a kind of decline in the quality of indonesian democracy and, and the last of many many contradictions I'll, I'll flag for now is that jacoby was the consummate outsider he used his status as someone from outside the elite uh, the guy from a small town who did things differently to get to the top and yet now we see him transformed into a consummate elite 
politician even launching his own political dynasty uh, with his son and son-in-law running in local elections later this year. And so when I was trying struggling to make sense of it, one of his ministers told me, you know, the best way to understand the president is simply as a bundle of contradictions, you know, like Indonesia itself. So I just found that a kind of very captivating theme. It's not really an academic framework, but it's a theme, I think, throughout his career that kind of reflects on these deeper contradictions in modern Indonesian history. And I'm just trying to tell people that, look, rather than wishing for this simple Indonesia story and always being disappointed, except there are these great contradictions, there, there are reasons why, I mean, in a sense, all of us are quite contradictory and actually framing it as contradictions isn't a way to sort of attack the man or, or the country. It's a way to try and get people to understand better, uh, be more sympathetic and actually get better outcomes from engaging with Indonesia. In less than a decade, Joko Widodo went from being a fairly successful entrepreneur in the furniture business to the president of the world's third largest democracy. So it's a dizzying move. And one of the constructs that you have in your book is that the man who was the furniture entrepreneur is not that separated from the man who's running the country. And therefore, he looks at trade and international affairs from that entrepreneurial perspective to some extent. Can you um, sort of, you know, eliminate that that uh, construct a little more? Yeah, I think it's it's important to understand how quickly Jokowi rose from from obscurity. And he wasn't a man in his earlier life who was much interested in politics. As a student, he preferred, uh, in his own words, climbing volcanoes and listening to heavy metal uh, to going to the coffee shops to talk politics with with other students. Um, he's not really a, a guy who had explicit political ambitions. He's not like a, a Boris Johnson who sat on daddy's knee age four and said he wanted to be world king. Um, but he has this inner confidence, I think, from his success um, in business. And as a, the mayor of Solo, his hometown, and then as governor of Jakarta, he had this very practical approach to, to politics, which I think was framed by his experience as a furniture maker, which was all about trying to improve infrastructure, trying to improve business permitting processes to make it easier for people to invest, and trying to improve access to health and education services, which again, I think you can see as the, the furniture maker who wants to look after the health of his work force. He wants to make it easier to get permits to do business at home and easier through better infrastructure to get access to overseas markets. And I think we've really seen him apply that in the presidency with this focus on building infrastructure. When it comes to foreign policy, he's quite mercantilist. He really talks about you know finding new markets overseas for Indonesian products and new sources of, of investment. And I think you know he has a very simple way that he looks at the world. And it's partly why he's been so successful, because I think it allows him to communicate to Indonesians in a way they understand and, and quite funny, you know, um, one time um, early in his presidency, uh, some foreign policy advisors were trying to get him to to talk and think more about the issues in the South China Sea, great, great power politics, etc. And he just responded to them saying, you know, why should I care about this? What does China and the South China Sea have to do with Indonesia? And one advisor explained it to him on the basis that, look, imagine if you're a furniture exporter, and there are great tensions and and clashes in South China Sea, the cost of insuring your shipments are going to go up and it's going to make you less competitive against other sources of furniture elsewhere in the world. And, you know, upon explaining it this way, Jokowi seemed to get it. So I think it gets to the heart, heart of the man. He's someone who's really been formed um, and his opinions and view the world formed by his own experience rather than what he reads or what he's told necessarily by advisors. And that, I think, has been a great strength politically for him in many senses. It's also a bit of a weakness in terms 
terms of tackling complex problems. And um, we see that with, with coronavirus, but also in the way um, he's trying to push through these economic reforms. Um, you know, it's not just about removing some permits. It's really about a much deeper structural reform of the bureaucracy that does require more public debate. It does require a stronger anti-corruption uh, commission, not one whose powers have been weakened. So I think the strengths of that approach helped him get to the top. But I think it's been challenging to apply that kind of experiential governance when you're managing a country uh, that's not just so big and so diverse, but has so many levels of government, right? Dozens of different ministries competing for power at the center, all issuing their own overlapping relation, regulations, as well as 550 directly elected uh, local leaders across Indonesia. So 550 mini Jokowis who all think they know what's best uh, for their local area, you know, with some justification. So it, it is difficult. And I don't think he's ever worked out a system uh, for how to try and get on top of that. But, you know, there is no easy answer there either. We have to acknowledge because it just takes time to, to build this kind of democratic governance system in what's a relatively young country, only 75 years old, and democracy in Indonesia much, much younger than that. I, I really like that uh, analytical approach, Ben. And in your book early on, you sort of established that very well when you talk about in 2014, when you went to Solo, uh, leading into the presidential election, and you couldn't find anybody who did not like Jokowi. Everybody loved him because in the solo context, he was the man of the people. He would listen to them for hours for all their, you know, ground level problems. But, you know, once you move to Jakarta and you have hundreds of millions of people as your constituency, uh, it's not that easy. Um, any anecdote that comes to you? Because you have sort of accompanied the president in his campaigns and in the, in the run up to his first election and so on. Uh, one anecdote you want to share with us that sort of gives us some insight into the man's personality? Um, it's, I think it's hard to encapsulate it in, in one anecdote. I mean, there, there are a few things I, I would share. I mean, one was in the 2014 election campaign. I, I spent a couple of days trailing the president in, in East Java in and around the important industrial city of, of Surabaya. And it was basically just utter chaos. Uh, the campaign was so disorganized and you had to drive in this convoy at, you know, hair-raising speeds down these very narrow roads because if you lost them you would never know where they were and everywhere he went he was just throwing t-shirts um, out of the car t-shirts that said Jokowi Adelakita or Jokowi is us or we are Jokowi um, and later on you know at that time he wasn't doing that well in the campaign I asked him you know how, how he, it, what, what's the aim like how is this a good enough campaign and he just said well you know each person who gets the t-shirt will tell their friends they got a t-shirt and they'll tell 10 other people and they'll spread the message and it was so ridiculously simplistic at the time I thought like this is crazy like is, is he even going to win but but he did win and so I think it spoke to like the simplicity of his approach and the confidence, but it is built on something, this, this connection we has with, with Indonesian voters. Um, another interesting example I can give is this new car ferry, a roll-on, roll-off ferry that was meant to be launched uh, a few years back between the Philippines, or the southern tip of the Philippines, and North Sulawesi. And this was a big part of Jokowi's maritime infrastructure push. He launched the project with great fanfare with Duterte. The first ferry went across carrying some cargo, and it was meant to be this new trade route that would reduce the cost and time of logistics that would you know, transform the trade prospects for outlying parts of Indonesia and the Philippines. And I went back a few months later to follow up on the project and it turned 
turned out there was only ever one ferry. The first ferry that Jokowi launched and never went again because the, the local protectionist regulations in both Indonesia and Philippines, the lack of a roadmap to kind of find what the demand for, for which goods was in which place and, and how to work with the local business sector had never really been done. So it was an example of something that looked good on, on paper. It attracted a lot of press attention at the time. It seemed to be this kind of transformative moment, but none of the follow-up work was really done. I want to ask you what might sound like a glib question, which is, you know, what will be Jokowi's legacy? But the reason I ask you this, and I'm sure you hear questions like this during your book tour, I, I ask you this because, I mean, the president still has a good four years or more left in his uh, second term. Uh, you, as you said earlier, he may want to have his uh, uh, family members run for office in the future. Uh, but I guess the reason I ask you is that, is it too early to tell that there's still a lot more in store or is this Indonesia and therefore a tale foretold? I think it's, there's no, there's no tale that's foretold in, in history. I, I think you know, history obviously constrains to a certain extent what we can do and, and conditions it, but it doesn't uh, lay the path for exactly what's going to happen. And Jokowi is six years into a 10-year presidency, but he's had a relatively short political career, uh, we have to remember, because it was only nine years from when he entered politics to when he first became president. So very soon he'll spent, he'll have spent as much time as president as he spent in politics before being president. So I think you know, he is also a man who likes to surprise. Uh, there's been a kind of increasingly unpredictable element to his leadership um, in the last couple of years, you know, for better in some cases and probably for worse in others. So I don't think we know exactly where this story is going to go. I think we can see his strengths and his weaknesses. And um, you can imagine it's going to be hard for him to do anything more than muddle through, especially given the added pressure now of the, the, the health crisis and the concomitant economic crisis. I think that's going to make it very, very difficult for him, frankly speaking. And we do know more generally speaking that that for, for democracies with two-term limits, you do tend to find this lame duck effect that even though Jokowi's amassed a lot of power now, as we get closer to the next presidential election in 2024, you can imagine his coalition breaking apart as new constellations emerge to fight for the presidency and as people, that the power game shifts to who's next and away from the guy who's in charge now. So for all those reasons, I'd be, I think it's going to be very challenging for Jokowi to change um, the course of things. Um, but, you, know, you simply don't know what's going to happen in politics in Indonesia and anywhere in the world. It is unpredictable. Um, so let's let's hope for the best. I think for Jokowi, it's really going to be about salvaging, salvaging the economy, trying to get some of these infrastructure projects um, back online. Um, but certainly his his attempt to build a legacy has been dealt a huge blow uh, by you know, the pandemic, something beyond his control. But it will also be ultimately a test of, is there a greater depth to his leadership? Is he able to pull through this great crisis, which has shown shone such an unflattering spotlight on all our political leaders and all our political systems. And I think, you know, understandably so early on um, into this crisis, the jury is still out. The jury is still out and it would certainly challenge the, the depth of his capacity. You're right. Uh, what are the fault lines at play and that we should be watching out for in the last four years of Jokowi's second term? I think there's a few key things to watch for. One would be 
you know, whether this, this pressure on Indonesia's democratic practice, the pressure on minority rights, the pressure on government critics that we've seen in the last few years, whether that intensifies and seems to be becoming more systematic, which I think will be quite concerning for Indonesia's medium-term trajectory. That's definitely one thing to watch out for. Um, another thing would be on the economy. Can Jokowi's finally bang some heads together to get a clearer way forward. He did a good job of moving up the World Bank ease of doing business rankings in his first six years. But I personally think that says more about uh, the government's ability to game those rankings and the limitations of those rankings, because I haven't spoken to many foreign investors who think it's any easier to do business now than six years ago. But if he can, if this is a crisis moment for the economy, the first economic crisis in Indonesia really since 1998, maybe it can force some hard thinking about trade-offs that Indonesia needs to make and moving towards some sort of clearer communication. So I think that's the other thing we need to watch. And, and more generally, I think I, I would look to um, the challenge of building out a more equal and fair economy. Indonesia, as I mentioned at the start, was already facing this huge deficit blowout in its, its health system, which is quite concerning. Uh, many millions of Indonesians are going to fall into poverty and lose their jobs because of this crisis. Um, so how quickly are they able to get the economy back on track overall? Uh, but more generally, how are the poorest and most vulnerable in Indonesia going to be affected? Because that's, that's really going to impact the country's long-term ability to fulfill uh, some of Jokowi's goals and many other people's hopes that it will be you know, this big, successful, developed country. But if it can't help uh, the most vulnerable through these tough times. I think it's going to be really, really difficult. Indeed. Ben, um, I thoroughly uh, enjoyed reading your book and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your time and insights. Great to talk to you, Tema. Thanks so much. Thank you very much to our listeners as well. Copy Time was produced by Martin Tucky. It is for information only and doesn't represent any trade recommendations. All 32 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.